as we take time now to look to the Lord in prayer. And our Father, what we're doing now as we come into your presence is that we, if anything, understand that the book of Job deals with the entire cosmic realm. That there is one sovereign over this universe. And Job longs an audience with the sovereign one. We can't take lightly what that means. This is a book about God and suffering. It delves into the bigger issues of life that so often we find ourselves asking. Where is God? Why are these things happening? And where all does this lead? So Father, what we want to do now is we, once again, week by week, continue to build and construct a house of wisdom that allows us to have a better understanding as to why things are the way things are in this world. Globally and personally. Once again, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wheels. We've come here, Father, to see Jesus and Him only. Pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Liz Smith has certainly captured our attention in this past week. A Massachusetts directive nursing, as the news publications put it, who at the end of each workday took to visiting an infant who had landed in her hospital, is now the girl's mother. After she had volunteered to foster her when the state gained custody of her in October of 2016. Liz Smith's daughter, Giselle, was born at 29 weeks gestation in July of 2016. and was diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome due to her birth mother's drug use during pregnancy. According to Franciscan Children's blog, Giselle, who was born weighing just under two pounds, spent three months in the NICU on ventilator support before she was transferred to Franciscan Children's and had developed an oral aversion. The infant had allegedly no visitors during her time at Franciscan Children, except for the 45-year-old nurse, Liz Smith, who herself had recently learned that she was not a good candidate for IVF. But with support from family and friends, Smith decided to foster Giselle, who was then nine months old, with the hope of helping her thrive outside the hospital wards. At first, Giselle's birth parents had supervised weekly visits, visitations. But according to the blog, those soon became infrequent and the goal went from reunification to adoption. Quote, When I got the call that the parents' rights were terminated, I imagined that it would be a day of relief. Uh, Smith, who had fallen in love with this little girl, told the blog, and it was a day I was really sad, a day I was really happy, 
I was really sad for them. I was gaining her, but I, they were losing her. And I tried to battle addiction and being a mom. And you can just hear her voice tail off. So two years after Giselle first landed in state custody, Smith legally became her mom. Smith said that the judge walked in on their adoption day, October 18, 2016. You are a gracious comforter, he said to her. When a judge walks in the room, everyone stands out of respect. But today, Liz Smith, I stand in respect for you. Because you deserve the respect from this room. A birthing day is a miracle. But adopting a child from miles away is destiny. That's what brought you two together. So developmentally, Giselle has thrived under Smith's care. Gracious care. And while she still receives her nutrition through a feeding tube... This nurse has helped her start eating a few solid foods as well as pizza and avocados. Kind of like that, don't you? Yeah. Hey. A gracious comforter has walked into the courtroom. There's a courtroom scene here unfolding once again in Job's mindset, isn't there? Because he longs for this defense attorney within the heavens, to be able to argue his case before the sovereign judge of the universe. But who can that be? Easter's approaching. What we want to do is to, this morning draw our three life situations that you and I spot in these verses that help us to better understand how it is that comforters of grace, not dispensers of guilt, how comforters of grace are going to be able to minister to those who are in the midst of loss. And check out verses 1 through 5 to get us started this morning, because in the midst of loss, the comfort of grace is needed here. When number one, tensions are escalating. And man, are the tensions escalating, aren't they? Because as you've been examining and studying and processing this tremendous book on God and suffering, you've spotted that there is a round, chapters 4 through 14, in which, in which one counselor speaks and Job responds, a second counselor speaks and Job responds, a third counselor speaks and Job responds. It's a back and forth. It was meant to be dialogue, but in reality, it's a debate, it's a dispute, because the counselors are operating off of the assumption that Job's suffering is due to Job's guilt. And if Job will simply address that guilt, Job will relieve himself of his suffering. They've got a simplistic, reductionist view of why suffering exists in this world. Now it's intensifying. We're into the second round. And now Job is going to answer the one Eliphaz, who is the oldest of the three counselors, as they position themselves at Job's ash heap, you see. Job's experienced loss relationally. His family members have died. 
He's experienced loss materially. His business is gone. He's experienced loss physically because he is now physically, medically challenged. He could use some grace. What these counselors give him is a truckload of guilt. Based upon their own assumptions regarding their views of why Job suffers. It's their formula for understanding how this world operates, you see. And Job is a threat to their simplistic reductionist views of why suffering takes place. Because he's arguing that he's blameless. And that is just how God viewed him in the opening verses of chapter 1. That this suffering is not due to a particular sinful act that Job has committed. And so now Job is a cosmic testimony to the fact that he's not on the take. That if God removes blessings from Job, Job will still trust God regardless of the blessings. Would you? So now Job's a bit exhausted because in round two, the stakes have been raised. And Eliphaz, the Otis of the three, and this is very typical in Middle Eastern approach, the Otis goes first. But as you've heard me say many a time, not everyone who grows old grows up. And now here's Eliphaz, the eldest of the three, and Job's going to have to respond to him. And so in chapter 16 of this one, Job answers the system, I've heard many such things, miserable comforters, y'all. He's southern, you see. He said, y'all. Now, imagine the indictment at this point. They've come all this ways to be able to dispense their counsel. And Job's take on it is that you guys are nothing but miserable comforters. Gives us pause. Because when you and I are positioned next to somebody's ash heap of, of, of personal pain and loss, what kind of comforters are we? What we will find in this chapter is that once again, assumptions are being attacked. They have assumptions about Job that are not valid, but Job has assumptions about God that's not valid. Assumptions are everywhere in the book of Job. And so now, Job has been listening, and I've heard many such things. I've heard your formulas for why there is suffering in this world in general, and for me in particular. You guys are a bunch of miserable comforters, that's all, but you all, you are. And then he adds this, verse 3. Shall windy words have an end? You guys are just all wind. What provokes you that you answer me? Well, you see, Job has provoked them because he, in essence, by arguing that he is blameless, is attacking their formula for why there is suffering in this world and how they are to view God in relationship to suffering. And he's arguing that, no, I am blameless. I'm, I'll admit I, I'm not sinless, but I am blameless. Well, now, in chapter 15, what you would have found is that Eliphaz, the oldest of the three, had said, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge? That's where the windiness comes from. And fill his belly with the east wind. Should he argue an unprofitable talk and words with which he can do no good? This is the oldest of the three talking. But you are doing away with the fear of God. 
Now everybody here is religious. The counselors are. Job is. They're heavy into the fear of God. And you and I know in the wisdom books the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But here's the challenge. They, wanting to argue for God's justice, have confused justice with judgmentalism. One of the great dangers in evangelicalism is to confuse the two. If we are to have a high view of God, and God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and His wisdom, there is power and justice and goodness and so forth from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yes, He's just, but He's not judgmental. And in their quest to defend God, Job is longing for a courtroom in which somebody would defend Job. Who would that be? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God, they say, and hindering meditation before God. And now the assumption of chapter 15 of verse, verse 5, your iniquity teaches your mouth. They have assumed iniquity. You choose the tongue of the crafty. For your own mouth condemns you, and not I, and your own lips testify against you. What's the issue here? I put it like this. These supposed counselors are reacting to Job's words instead of responding to Job's pain. These three supposed counselors are reacting to Job's words rather than responding to Job's pain. There are times when you want to put your arm around Job and say, a little less, Job. Talk a little less, a little more restraint. But what you and I will find sometimes is that when loss is severe, restraint is diminished. They have less capacity to restrain. And furthermore, what they will sometimes do is to overstate their views of God or of other people, that God's attacking them and others are attacking them, and um, there's an aloneness here in the midst of verbiage. So now, the windy word thing of Eliphaz comes back, and here's Job in chapter 16 saying, Shall windy words have an end, or what provokes you? What's got you so agitated, Eliphaz? Your younger counselors are listening to your lead. In verse 4, I also could speak as you do, if you were in my place, from To Kill a Mockingbird. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Until you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. Harper Lee has the great lawyer speaking at this point. Well, I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would have said it wrong because they have failed to take into account that the evil one has so targeted Job and Job has been viewed by God as a blameless man even though he's a sinful man that God in essence is saying I will remove the blessings so that you can see he will keep his faith and trust intact in me. 
Here's the rub then that so often people make assumptions based upon the fact they assume they know the cosmic chapters that have never been revealed to humanity. How do you respond? Well, we used Lincoln from the north. Well, how about Robert E. Lee from the south? Uh, hearing, hearing General Lee speak in high terms and to the president of the south at that point in the Confederacy. A biographer says that a certain officer, another officer, was astonished and said to the general, Do you know that the man of whom you speak so highly to the president is one of your bitterest enemies? And he misses no opportunity to malign you? Yes, replied General Lee, who loved Jesus, yes. But Jefferson Davis asked my opinion of him. He did not ask for his opinion of me. I still hold him highly. The tensions are mounting here at this point. The respect is being diminished at this point. Relief's not to be found at this point. And all that we see here is that they are reacting to Job's words instead of, instead of finding a way of responding to Job's pain. And we've got to bear in mind that sometimes those who have experienced loss are going to state things and overstate things and phrase things that eventually they might have to say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. But you nor I are in the presence at that point of hearing them say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. And so we've got to get beneath the surface of the verbiage Meanwhile, in 1 through 5, the tensions, they are a mountain, aren't they? Which leads us now into this, this second life situation in this wisdom book that God's provided. And number two, that in the midst of loss, the comfort of grace is needed when God seems adversarial. And it almost seems as though God is opposed to you at this point. And you're looking at your life experience, or maybe you're simply your recent years, and you're saying, God, what are you doing? And why are you doing this to me? Rather than saying, what is God doing for me? Watch the words, to me versus for me at this point. Watch the words that Job uses as you pick up in verse 6. Do you spot the repetition? It's the word if. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Now the wise counselor at this point, the wise parent at this point, if you're single, you don't have children at this point, you've got people, co-workers or students in, in your various classes, they're still going to get caught up in the if only. Or if I could, I would have. Job is human, and at this point, he is utilizing the if statements as the counselors are leading forward, assuming they know the opening chapters of the cosmic conflict between God, Satan, and Job. They don't. And so he's grappling here with how, how you view God and how you view humanity. And so if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. If I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Question mark. I mean, I, I'm speaking to comfort myself as well. 
Surely now, God's worn me out. He's speaking autobiographically at this point. He's made desolate all my company. He, he considers all his children. They're gone. Desolation. And because he holds to the sovereignty of God as to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his three friends, well, this is why then, without having that sense of direct versus indirect involvements and such things, he says, he has shriveled me up. That's an assumption. Has he or has Satan at this point? He's not privy to the cosmic opening chapters of his sufferings. All he does at this point is that he utters an assumption about God while they are making assumptions about Job. And this is a book of assumptions. And if you and I are going to glean wisdom from this particular wisdom book, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the five wisdom books of the Older Testament, it's this. We will be a congregation that will not live off of assumptions. There are cosmic chapters that have been written in a person's life that you nor I know about. They assume they know it about Job. Job assumes he knows stuff about God. And nobody seems to take Satan into account at this point. It's a shame. All of a sudden it breaks in at you, doesn't it? Like I said, he's got a judicial view. He's got a legal view of such things. And so now, the judicial aspect breaks in. He's shriveled me up in verse 8, which is a witness against me. That is as if there is a, a prosecuting attorney. God is a witness against me. My leanness has risen up against me. It testifies. That's another legal term. He's thinking the cosmic court at this point. It's to my face. But did you notice here in verses 6, 7, and 8 at this moment, we don't have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, do we? No. Now he's bought into terminology that his guilt-driven guilt-assuming counselors possess. They lack that sense of Yahweh, Lord, Jehovah, God. No, God is a bit distant. God is just, but God is not gracious. And so now, Job's mentality, Job's thinking, is being shaped somewhat by the give and the take. And so he adds now in verse 9, He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. Has he, Job? Really? Don't you wish he'd come alongside now and bring more balance to the pain and the severity of his verbal expressions? But so often, the severity of verbal expressions just simply symptomatic of the severity of the physical pain. Get beyond the words. Understand the relationship of cause and effect. But he has gnashed his teeth at me. And now the word that I'm using for my second of these two life situation points, where we need the comfort of Grace, when God seems adversarial, he says, my adversary sharpens his eyes against me. But his assumption is the adversary is God at this point, when in reality the adversary is the evil one. And where is God in the midst of it all? 
He says, and ten men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They amassed themselves together against me. Really, Job? I mean, doggone. All the people? Everybody? But you see, extreme language is oftentimes used in extreme pain. And the wise counselor is going to have to be able to distinguish that. But they're so caught up with Job's words and they're reacting to Job's words instead of responding to Job's pain. And where is God? And God seems so adversarial at this point, you see. But then Christian Wise helps us. I was scheduled to speak at Chicago's Moody Founders Week conference in 1960. He wrote years ago. And during the latter part of the preceding December, I received a letter from the president of Moody in which he made a statement to this effect, quote, Brethren, we must come to Founders Week with broken hearts if the world's to receive blessing through us, unquote. Now, that was an unusual letter from him to me because I was to be a speaker, and it gripped me, and I paused, and there at my desk, I prayed, Oh, God, Lord, I cannot answer for the other speakers who will be speaking at Founders Week, but I am responsible for the state of my own heart. Lord, I'm asking you now, whatever the cost may be, send me to... Founders Week with a broken heart. I didn't realize what this would mean. I was scheduled to minister in conferences in the West Indies prior to. About five one afternoon, I was contacted and given this message, your wife has died of a heart attack at 1 p.m. Well, she was to have met me the following Monday in Chicago where I would be speaking at Founders Week together. Now, this was a difficult struggle for me. But falling to my knees beside my bed, I said, Lord, I will go. I mark what comes next. You give me the grace and I will speak. Grace. What a judge sees in a Liz Smith as she enters the courtroom. Grace. It's Tuesday night in Holland, Michigan, and I'm picking up boxes and moving furniture and the likes because, as most of you know, my parents died 10 weeks apart last year. It's not been a year yet. And uh, so all of a sudden I hear these sighs from another room, and it's my sister. I promised I would come to help. She's on spring break. She's an assistant principal. And I listen carefully to the sighs, and I'm asking, Lord, okay, how do I minister now? And then I'm reading Job 16. Okay, Lord, make me a comforter of grace. I want to be a dispenser of grace and bring some grace to the sigh. Do you bring grace to the sighs of life? The afters. 
I can barely stand right now, and everything is crashing down, and I wonder where you are. Isn't that what Job is doing at this point? And I try to find the words to pray, and I don't always know what to say. You ever been there? But you're the one who can hear my heart, and even though I don't know what your plan is, I know you make beauty from these ashes. And there's Job for you. There's Job. I've seen joy and I've seen pain and on my knees I call your name. And here's, here's my broken hallelujah. And some of us here this morning, we arrive on the scene and we bring the brokenness and we need someone else to sing the hallelujah for us, you see. If you found ways to position yourself at ash heaps where someone has lost their song and they need you to sing the hallelujah for them, because it's a broken hallelujah, but it's a hallelujah nonetheless. With nothing left to hold on to, I raise these hands to you. Here's my broken, here's my broken hallelujah. But you see, Eliphaz built it in Zophar. They don't see the brokenness, and they don't even have an hallelujah at this point to offer. But this congregation's different. Because Monday morning, whether it be in the uh, hallways at school, or maybe it's in the hospital, no matter where it is, you're going to bump into brokenness, and you're going to have to somehow, someway, pray a hallelujah into that person's heart. You doing that? As you hear the sighs that long for the grace from another room of a person's experience? Well, for the sake of time, we're on to the third of the three life situations. Because thirdly, in the midst of loss, the comfort of grace is needed when advocacy is required. You see. And what I've done now is to contrast contrast the adversarial versus the advocacy of God. Job views him as an adversary in one hand, and yet he views him as an advocate on the other hand. You say, how can he do both? Well, he's in pain. And when you're dealing with people that have experienced loss, they're going to contradict themselves. They're going to say one thing on one side of the extreme spectrum, and then they're going to say another thing ten minutes later on the other side of the extreme spectrum. He's saying, he's his adversary there in verse 9, but look what trucks down your path beginning here in verse 18. O earth, cover not my blood. And let my cry find no resting place. And say, Gary, what on earth does that have to do with anything? Glad you asked. Genesis chapter 4. Read it sometime. Check it out. There was a proverbial expression in the days of Genesis. And of course, Job lived in the days of Genesis. It's that when somebody died as a victim and they were innocent, and that the blood would cry to the heavens. Job has now got the attention of these three counselors living in the time period of Genesis, that he is a victim of what they are stating, and that when he dies, his blood will cry upwards to the heavens. 
as a witness to the fact that though sinful, he is blameless. Nonetheless, he is challenging their simplistic notions of what suffering is all about. And so here you have it. Here it comes your way. This is Easter two weeks in advance. Verse 19. Even now. See how relevant he is. Always be relevant when you're ministering. Even now. Behold, he wants their attention. My witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me, not against me. He's not the prosecuting attorney. He's the defense attorney. He who testifies for me is on high, the cosmic courtroom. I've alluded to some of the great courtroom scenes and movies uh, throughout the decades. Another classic, of course, is To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's based upon the movie, or excuse me, upon the book. And the movie I'm thinking of is, it's an old one, 1932, Gregory Peck film, where Peck is a cool and composed defense attorney throughout the movie. And in the end, he asks for simple justice to be applied based on the evidence. And what Job wants is a defense attorney who can argue his case in the cosmic courtroom simply based upon evidence. And you say, but Gary, where do we get this whole idea to kill a mockingbird? It's, it's a great line from, from the book itself, Harper Lee. And there, there you have it. Right in the midst of it all, Atticus Finch, the defense attorney. Remember, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. His daughter says that that was the only time I ever heard my father say something of this nature. And I asked Miss Maudie about it. Your father's right, she said. Mockingbirds don't do one thing, but make music for us to enjoy. They sing their hearts out for us. That's why it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. Maybe today somebody's lost their music. It's a sin to kill a mockingbird. Then it's time to sing for them. And to bring some music back into their soul. And understand that there's a great composer in the heaven. Who's sovereign over all. And you don't want this to so distort your understanding of God in the midst of loss. Because it seems as though there's, a, there's a, a temporal distortion in Job's mind regarding God. Is he adversary or is he advocate? Which is it? He's back and forth. You saw it there in the verses. But then C.S. Lewis in Grief Observed kicks in. He lost his wife, you see, to cancer. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. No. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. 
The conclusion I dread is not, ah, so there's no God after all, but rather, ah, so this is what God's really like. Which is the tension of the hour and why you bring grace to the cosmic courtroom experience. So here he feels so alone in 20. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God. He doesn't say Lord. He says God. Still a judicial distant view of God at this point. Where are you God? That he could argue the case of a man with God. But to argue a case of a man before God. It would require a sinless one to do it. Someone who has divinity. On the other hand, to experience the totality of the pain and the suffering, there's going to have to be humanity. We need both divinity and humanity. Where are you going to find someone like that? And all of a sudden, look what appears on the screen at this point. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God. Mark it. On our behalf. Jesus is not the prosecuting attorney. He's the resurrected defense attorney. Intervening on our behalf at the cross interceding in the heavens on our behalf. And there you have it. And that's why a judge would be able to be talking about grace in a setting of justice. And so when the judge walked in on that adoption day of October 18 of 2018, you are a comforter of grace. When a judge walks in the room, everyone stands out of respect. But today, Liz Smith, I stand in respect for you. Because you deserve the respect from this room. A birthing day is a miracle. Adopting a child from miles away is a destiny. That's what brought you two together. Who's God bringing into your life, who has an ash heap, and you're meant to be brought together. And so, this little girl is receiving her nutrition through a feeding tube. And this wise nurse has helped her start eating a few solid foods, as well as pizza and avocado. There's grace for you. Let's stand together. Another Sunday, another week closer to Easter. And here in the days of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, here's Job talking about the one, the one who intercedes. And we see Jesus imprinted upon these pages who understood grief as he bore our guilt. Keep us from making assumptions. Keep us from assuming that we've read and know and understand the chapters 1 and 2 of someone else's life. 
Instead, Father, we trust in the cosmic one, the great judge of the universe, who in his grace sent Jesus to die in our place for our sins, taking our guilt, offering us his grace to set us free. And for this we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.